John chapter 18. This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. So here in John chapter 18, we find the conclusion of the series that I've been doing, going through the I Am statements. In the book of John, we have looked at I am the bread of life. In John chapter 6, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8, for Abraham was, I am. Also in John chapter 8, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 14, I am the true vine. In John chapter 15, and then the conclusion is here where we are this morning in John chapter 18. We've been moving through these statements. And at the same time as we've been moving through these statements, we've also been moving through essentially the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. Where we are at this point, John chapter 18, the 5,000 have been fed, the man born blind has been healed, Lazarus has been raised, they have partaken of the Last Supper, Jesus has prayed the high priestly prayer. And that brings us to where we are this morning. So we will go to the Word, but before we do so, let us pray again before we read. Lord, you are the great I Am. And in your Word, there is truth for us, there is hope for us, there is Jesus Christ, because he is the living Word. And I pray as we read this morning that that will be what we see. We won't see Ben, we won't see any of ourselves, we won't see anything other than Christ and what that means for us. I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we read and as we study. And it's in the I Am's name that we pray. Jesus' name. Amen. So again, let's go to the Word. This is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of God that we have read this morning. So let's go back, verse 1, here in John chapter 18. It tells us that Jesus went out 
across the brook Kedron. Why does he do this? One of the things that John is striving to show in his gospel, the gospel of John, is that Jesus is not a passive force or person upon whom things are enacted. Every action taken, every word spoken, every miracle performed, every parable told, every breath breathed is done with perfect purpose. The world does not work things upon the person of Christ. The person of Christ is working in the world. So here is the word. Jesus. He is the word. And the word was there in the beginning. The very God who created all things is standing there in the world that he has made. And all things are happening according to the perfect plan that he has had from the foundation of the world. So Jesus goes out from where he was to the garden. But in his going, there is purpose. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has had numerous encounters where John has re- has used a variation of a specific phrase. The first time we run into it is John chapter 2. It's the wedding feast at Cana. Jesus' mother Mary asks that Jesus intervene, right? Because they have run out of wine. So Mary wants Jesus to do something. And Jesus responds to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, verse 6, to his brothers, Jesus says, My time has not yet come. In John chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus is not arrested because his hour had not yet come. Again, in John 8, verse 20, Jesus is not arrested because, quote, his hour had not yet come. There is a divine timetable, a plan had by the Almighty that has determined the entirety of Jesus' ministry, and this holds true also in John chapter 18, where we are this morning. There have been no hiccups, no hitches, no mistakes, no miscalculations, no changing of course. The plan that was in place from the beginning is being carried out even in chapter 18. So up to this point, we know that there is an hour, a specific time that is the hour, and we find that here in John chapter 18. The hour. Mark tells us of this hour in Mark 14:41. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In John 12, verse 23, Jesus says, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." And then moments later, in verse 27, "And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour." So when Jesus went out across the brook Hedron, in verse one, he knows it's the hour. He goes to the garden. It's not that Jesus is in the garden and then Judas appears to arrest him as if this is happenstance. Like Jesus is doing his thing and, oh, there's Judas. He's here to arrest him. No. Jesus went to the garden in purpose. So we need to recognize here who is taking the initiative, right? Jesus went to the garden specifically because he knew that's where Judas was going go. Jesus could have gone somewhere else, anywhere else, but the hour had come, and so Jesus goes to meet Judas and those with him, not merely as a helpless lamb, but as the mighty shepherd. He would not have his life taken from him, but he will lay it down for his sheep. So moving out of verse 1, John 18, the move to show us 
who all will be present for the events that would transpire in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the actors on this terrible stage, so to speak. Jesus enters the garden, but he does so not alone. With him are his disciples. Remember, Jesus knows that it is the hour. He knows that he goes to meet Judas. He knows that with Judas there will be a mob. He knows that the religious leaders and those with them would like nothing more than to see not only Jesus put to death, but those closest to him too. John 12, 9 through 11 tells us this threat even extended to Lazarus after he was raised. The man Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus, was also threatened. So they're wanting everyone that has to do with Jesus, they would like to see them taken care of as well. If Jesus is indeed the shepherd, his disciples are his sheep. And it appears by all accounts that here in 18, that the shepherd is leading them into harm's way. So Jesus is present as are his disciples. And who comes to meet them? Verse 3, so Judas having procured a band of soldiers, so there are soldiers present. Band of soldiers here is the Greek word spira and would refer to a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort would typically, it could be as many as a thousand soldiers, typically numbered around 600. It could be as few as 200. But don't make the mistake of reading group of soldiers and thinking, okay, it's probably 20 guys. This is a lot. There are a lot of soldiers here in this band. They aren't messing around. The religious leaders have been selling this as a potential political coup or uprising, and the Romans intend on meeting the supposed threat with an appropriate response. They don't know what is waiting for them in this garden, but they plan on being prepared to eliminate the problem. So the cohort is there, and they are armed and ready. This is Rome. The world's political superpower, the pinnacle of the world's governmental system, is there at the hour to oppose Jesus. But the Romans are not alone. The Pharisees are also present. Their representatives are there in the garden with the Roman soldiers, and they seek Jesus' harm. Jewish religious leaders here represent the pinnacle of the world's religious systems and ideologies. They have the law, and they believe that they keep it. If anyone on man's terms could have reached right standing with God, it would be those among the religious Jews. Paul remarks of himself regarding this tradition in Philippians 3, quote, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone could be righteous on the planet Earth, it would be people like Paul. It would be the Pharisees. They are like Rome in the sense that they are the pinnacle, the best of the best in terms of religious belief and expression in the world of that day. The mightiest political and religious superpowers are gathered to oppose Jesus of Nazareth in the hour. But they are not alone. The archetypal hypocrite, the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, is there with them. Judas led the Jews and the Romans to the garden for the hour, Judas intends to betray the rabbi he has sat under for the last few years, the friend that he has known and with whom he has traveled and broken bread. He has heard the teachings. He has seen the signs. Jesus, hours before, washed this man's feet. And Judas has come to betray the same Jesus with a kiss, as it tells us in Luke 22, verse 47. So Judas is there. 
But it is not merely Judas. There are the Romans. There are the Jews. There is Judas. And possessing Judas is Satan. Luke 22, verse 3 tells us then, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. John 13, 27 tells us much the same, stating that after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you were going to do, do quickly. Not only are all the powers of the earth, the full might of sinful man, aligned and together at the hour to oppose Jesus, their father is there too. Satan. The prince of darkness, it is he who comes to the garden of Gethsemane to kiss the face of Jesus, to betray him. It is a dark hour. Luke 22:53 tells us that Jesus said to them, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. It is not merely the hour that we are reading about here in John chapter 18. It is their hour. It is an hour belonging to the political power of Gentile Rome. It is an hour belonging to the religious tradition and the legalistic hypocrisy of the Jews. It is the hour, and it is Satan's hour. Jesus has stepped into our world and has proverbially walked into the house of the devil, the prince of this world, and the serpent has come to kiss the face of this offspring of Eve. This is the hour of darkness, the most ruinous moment of human history, the mightiest evil that has ever been is the power that we see present in the garden here to meet Jesus. This is the garden that Jesus came to in verse 1 when he crossed that brook, the Kedron. And remember, he brought his disciples. So they're there. And what of them? Well, we know what they do, right? Not only does the world fail and betray this Jesus of Nazareth, preferring their darkness to the light of the world that they cannot comprehend, the disciples fail too. They enter into fight or flight. Peter first takes up arms. He moves to strike the high priest's servant. We learn that his name is Malchus. And he cuts off his ear in verse 10. This is not the right response. Although Jesus has been proclaiming to the world and to them that this hour would take place, and what would take place, Peter acts in his own flesh and moves to fight what God would do. Peter moves to meet the hour according to his own ability and his own power. And in this way, Peter is like the Pharisees. He's trying to do it on his own. He attempts to overcome according to what he believes to be right and with the power and means that he has himself rather than what the living word has spoken. And so Peter strikes Malchus with a sword. They fight. And Jesus responds to this by healing Malchus. Jesus undoes Peter's act of violence. So the disciples attempt at fighting the hour fails. They can't fight the hour, and so they flee. They run from it. Matthew 26, 56 tells us, Then all the disciples left him and fled. The confidence that the sheep have in the shepherd has been extinguished. They do not believe that the shepherd will protect his sheep, and so they first attempt to defend themselves with force, and when that fails, they run. They forsake the shepherd. And this betrayal doesn't even end there. We know Peter will go on to deny Jesus three times. Three times Peter declares, Jesus is not my shepherd. Peter three times says, I am not his sheep. When the hour came, the disciples failed. When the hour was upon them, the disciples forsook their master. So let's recap. Who was in the garden? 
the Roman soldiers bearing arms and torches. They were there. The Pharisees clinging to their own righteousness. They were there too. Satan possessing Judas, the betrayer. He was there. The disciples failing at any and every given opportunity. Fighting God's plan. Running from God's plan. Denying this Jesus of Nazareth. It is the hour of darkness here in John 18. The power of evil is at its peak. But there was another. There was another in the garden. The one who went across the brook, Kedron, for the hour. Now for a second, let's hop in our time machine, so to speak. It's a place we've gone back to several times as we've been moving through these I Am statements. We're going back to Exodus. In Exodus, there was another hour. God's people had languished in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. They were oppressed. The labor was hard. Their children were taken and killed. The world held God's people in its satanic grasp, and it would not let them go. In that hour, that hour of darkness, the Lord God appeared to an incredibly flawed man named Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was keeping his father-in-law's flock there. In chapter 3, he was a shepherd. A shepherd. Rod in hand, caring for sheep. Moses had already been run out of Egypt. He had attempted to enact change, to bring freedom for the Hebrew people. This resulted in a man being killed and Moses running for his life. He was a fugitive. If Moses, a man raised in the court of Pharaoh as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, could not bring freedom for God's people, who could? God's people were enslaved, and it seemed like there would be no Savior. It was a dark hour. But in that hour, the Lord appeared to Moses as Moses was tending the flock. The Lord appeared to Moses and directed him to go to Egypt, so that God's people would be released. The Lord's flock. The Lord's sheep. His people. The Lord tells Moses that in that hour, the Lord God would work and use the weak man Moses to break Egypt's grip of stone so that God's people would be free. Why? Because even in that hour, that hour of darkness, God would not forsake His people, even though they would forsake him. And in that hour, the Lord God reveals that he will bring freedom. He will liberate his people. The Lord keeps his word. God's power does not wane. The hour is part of God's own design so that through the hour, his people may be free. And in that hour, God declares his name, his own name. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Into an hour of brokenness, into an hour of despair, into an hour of darkness, the Lord God wondrously utters his own name for the sake of his people, I am. Let's fast forward. John 18. It is a different hour. The Gentile Roman Empire is seeking to solidify its dominion over the earth in the hour. The Jewish religious leaders are desiring to stamp out truth in the hour so that they can continue to pursue righteousness through their own 
works. Judas rejected and betrayed the eternal son in the hour so that he might gain temporal monetary gain. And Satan, in his immeasurable wickedness and malice, wishes to torture, maim, and kill the Christ in the hour and see this destruction visited upon the shepherd's sheep also. In this hour, he wants to destroy them. And in this hour, the disciples, those who swore they would never leave or forsake Jesus, do just that without exception. Words being uttered by Peter's lips, those words of denial that Satan could never bring Job to utter, I do not know the man. This is their hour, the hour of destruction, the hour of despair. It is an hour of unspeakable evil, of pitch black darkness. But that hour, in that hour, there is Jesus. He knows the hour. It was part of his plan. He crossed the brook Kedron for the hour. He knows that the hour will see that he is delivered into the hands of those who hate him violently. And that not only will he die under those hands, but he will bear the full weight of man's sinfulness. All of the evil perpetrated in that darkest of hours. All of that evil will be visited upon Jesus' own head. In addition to every other wrong, every other evil, all three of Peter's denials. Why? Because even in that hour, Jesus would not forsake his people, even though they had forsaken him. And in that hour, Jesus Christ brought freedom. He liberated his people. Jesus always keeps his word. Jesus' power is not waning in that hour. The hour of darkness is part of the plan so that through this most vile of hours, Jesus' people may be free. And in this hour, In John chapter 18, verse 5, the Lord God does what he has done one other time, centuries before. He speaks his own name. Notice, John chapter 18, verse 4, Jesus, in control of the situation, asks them, whom do you seek? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus tells them, I am he speaks, he speaks the Greek correlative of the Hebrew here, stating Ego Ami, the name above all names. He speaks the name. Throughout John, there are other statements where Jesus says, Ego Ami, I am. But those statements are paired often with other things. I'm the bread, I am the light, I am divine, etc. Even in saying before Abraham was, I am, it is in conjunction with a descriptor of sorts. Not so here. And as Jesus speaks his name, those there in the garden fall to the ground. He is not merely a lamb who is taken and then slaughtered. He is the shepherd. All of reality is now standing on its head. The shepherd in this hour will lay down his life for his sheep. His life will not be taken, but he will lay it down. So Jesus asks them again, whom do you seek? in verse 7. They respond with the same answer. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus here, the shepherd, once again declares his name. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. In asking who they are seeking, Jesus is in a way confirming whose name, for lack of a better term, is on the warrant. 
right? But who are you here for? You're here for me. It is a protective measure. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have no authority to arrest anyone other than me. So lift these with me, go. And now we come to the verse that I believe is the crux of this entire passage, working in conjunction with what is told to us in verse 5 when he states his name. I think it ties directly back to Exodus. God liberating his people, I am. Here in John chapter 18, I am he. And then in verse 9, this was to fill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. The promise here that he would lose not one is repeated several times in John. John chapter 639, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In John chapter 10, verse 28, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John chapter 17, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus didn't lose one. So remember, Jesus came with purpose across the brook Kedron and he didn't come alone. The shepherd brought his sheep with him into the darkest of hours, and the powers there gathered against Jesus the shepherd were also gathered against the sheep. But the shepherd is keeping. The I am is here to call his people out of the bondage that they are in, in spiritual Egypt, and to lead them to a new kingdom, new life. And yet in the hour of darkness, every aspect of that darkness desires to see the sheep slaughtered. The Romans want to stamp out any inkling of insurrection. The Jews want to eliminate any threat to their man-centered idolatry. And Satan wants to destroy them because they belong to Christ. But the shepherd is keeping. Just a few hours before the events here in John chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to Peter in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan's desire was to sift Peter like wheat. To sift wheat is to separate the grain from the chaff. It's to break it so that what is edible can be separated from that which is not. If, if Jesus had not prayed for Peter, Satan would have destroyed Peter. The accuser was demanding to have him, and apart from the shepherd's intervention, the sheep, Peter, would have been lost, gone, not in the flock, not free, not liberated, dead, destroyed. Peter's faith persisted only because of Jesus' intercession and keeping power. No one other than I am could do this. And what was Peter doing in the midst of all this? Jesus is praying for Peter that he would not be lost. And in John chapter 18, in the first 11 verses, we read that this Peter, he takes up a sword, he strikes a man, and then he runs, abandoning Christ. And later in the same chapter, Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter is doing horrible things, things that deserve death. The accuser knows the kind of man Peter is and demands to have him. Satan is saying Peter is a sinner. He is a failure. 
look, you call him a friend and he denies you. Give him to me and I will destroy this son of destruction. This is the darkest hour. Every aspect of fallen humanity in John 18 is horribly, diametrically opposed to Jesus. There is nothing redeemable here. So Satan demands to have those whom he believes belong to him. But the shepherd intervenes. Those he calls, he keeps. For this hour, Jesus prayed. For that hour. For Peter. For James, for John, for Barnabas, for Matthew, for all the eleven. It didn't matter what they did. They couldn't fight. They could, they could fight. They could run. They could deny him. But they could not be lost. The Romans and Jews would conspire. Satan would demand. The disciples would fail. But Jesus would pray. And because Jesus prays, they are kept. The sheep are saved. God's people are covered. I am doesn't, doesn't lose one. Not one. Every accusation Satan could heap, every drop, drop of judgment that is deserved is borne on the back of Jesus Christ at Calvary on the cross. It's all done. Because it was the hour. Not merely the hour of darkness. But it, it was also the hour where Jesus would be glorified. Man's vilest evil, Satan's greatest treachery is the moment of Jesus' mightiest triumph. Today we live in an hour. An hour of darkness. The world hates you, Christian. Satan demands to have you. He wants to destroy you. Your sins and your failings are probably weighing on you. But Jesus prays for you. He died for you. He drank that cup for you. You are secure. No one will be lost, no matter the hour. Romans 8, 34, 35 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? The Romans couldn't do it. The Pharisees couldn't do it. Judas couldn't do it. The devil couldn't do it. The disciples couldn't do it to themselves. Because Jesus intercedes and he prays and he keeps and he saves his sheep. I am praise for you, Christian sister, Christian brother. He prays for you right now. Just like he prayed for Peter. They're not different. It's the same. He prays for you. And he doesn't lose those for whom he prays. This is who I am is. He is for you.